Hi, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and welcome to Impact the Podcast, where we bring together some of entertainment's most creative minds to explore the themes and philosophies behind content creation. Today, we will be hearing from writer-director Damien Chazelle and Wu-Tang founder The RZA, followed by the writer of 12 Years a Slave, John Ridley, and later, the co-founder of Impact, Imagine Entertainment, and world-renowned producer, Ryan Grazer. Throughout our Impact Speaker sessions, we've asked people at the top of their field what the greater meaning behind the screen really is. Across the board, each person has responded with a story of the specific feeling of falling in love with movies or the aha moment of creating something that lands for the first time. The basis of both of these reactions is emotion and emotional memory. Movies have to be about something. They are designed to make you feel and question your feelings. They are a roadmap to emotionality. Today's sessions were recorded live at the Impact 3 Pitch Day and Impact 3 Accelerator in conversation with Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, and Tyler Mitchell. The RZA has always had an eye on current culture and has even been a part in defining it. The Golden W for the Wu-Tang Clan is one of the most recognizable symbols in music, and this group played a huge role in changing the sound of rap forever. So. When the RZA is on a creative exploration, be it music or film or television, it's about the cultural climate of the world and how that feeds into our emotions. What is needed in our current landscape and what are the current truths people can find solidarity in? What do you guys look, when you guys look around and you sort of say, this is what audiences are craving. You were just talking about it a little bit, but so, you know, what, what do you, what, what is it? What's going on? Wow, well, I mean, the hot changes so fast, right? Yeah. You know, so I think it's hard to measure what's hot, but I would say the the most important thing is going back to it, um, is what he just said is that just do what you do, right? The crazy thing about this art that we are doing, especially as a writer, I mean, you know, you know, you know, you didn't like who knew that you know when you when you did Whiplash that that was going to be the big sensation, right? That's that that the way the drummer was doing that becomes. When we watch Birdman, now we're seeing jazz drums as a full score, right? So you don't, it's hard to say what's hot now, but what's always hot, right, is creativity and originality. That's gonna always be hot. It's gonna always be like, what's that new flavor? What's that new taste? And as long as the writer uh, is, is, is doing that and, um, and, and maybe add a little bit of resonance, like, like what's resonating, right? So that's a better question, I think, Ron. What's resonating mm -hmm. with the people now, right? So here we are in a very strong uh, political climate, a very strong dynamic of, of our world evolving, uh, a genderless world, right? Um, a very strong diversity urge is happening, right? The urge of diversity is happening, uh, but then there's the counter where diversity is like, no diversity, keep it out, we wanna, we want. So those energies are kinda the counteracting, counteracting energies right now. And whatever you're writing, you know, if it, uh, if it resonates, it resonates. I, I saw a film, uh, I watched HUD recently, right? Like maybe five days ago, and uh, the backdrop of the of the movie is foot and mouth disease, right? Because that was a big thing that's happening in the country. You know, foot and mouth disease is happening at that period of time. And here's a movie that's set in that backdrop. And 
the movie is great, Paul Newman and the whole, he, he got the Oscar, right? But the point of it is that the resonation of the family story resonates at any given time, but the resonation of the problem was only for that period. So I think when you're writing for your res when you to resonate your energy, you can say you can write something now that puts it in the backdrop of you know whether it's the election, whether it's uh, a, a kid who's you know they say going to school and trying to find his sexuality and what, who is he, right? That backdrop becomes one thing, and and if the common denominator of yourself is in there, it I think it'll always play as a good film no matter what. As long as you have something that resonates of the time you're making it and that pure common denominator that all us humans feel, uh, love, hate, you know, the, the main emotions, shall I say. Damien Chazelle first wowed the world with the gut-wrenching intensity of the 2014 film Whiplash. And then, with La La Land, ignited a feeling of wonder, hope, and love in audiences across the world. These two movies could not be more different in terms of content, but what's at their core is a constant. For Damien, the heart of a film goes beyond story. It's finding the universal truths that are not only currently relevant, but are emotionally ageless and will always withstand the test of time. I think, uh, but I think it's like, I mean, I definitely do think a lot about what you know, like, like what you just said of, of, of you know, the, the thing that makes something universal or that makes something hopefully stand the test of time beyond just the climate in which it's made is, is what makes it personal, what makes it emotional, you know? So sometimes I'll start from there, you know? Sometimes, like, it'll just be, um, oh, you know, this thing happened to me. Um, I've never written anything entirely autobiographical, but, like, you know, but, you know sort of refracted through something. Oh, I can kind of change a few things around and... But, I, but I'll be writing to this emotion that I felt at this time, you know, and, and just hoping that someone out there has felt that same emotion, even in a different context, and that'll be what connects. And, it, and then it sort of, it doesn't matter what the genre is. Um, uh, but other times, you know, like, like the last movie I did was about Neil Armstrong, and I, I so I'm not Neil Armstrong. I've never, uh, uh, my life has not overlapped with his in any way, really. Um, so, so there, the ch and, and actually for that reason, it was probably part of the reason why initially uh, when, when a, a producer first approached me about it, initially I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm not sure about this and Space Race has been handled very well uh, in, in uh, movies in the past and, you know, uh, 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 I, I don't know. Uh, why me? You know, you kind of want to be the thing where you can answer why you, why you yeah, of course, do this yeah, better. Why you specifically should and, do it. Uh, and then after a little bit of thinking, I sort of found my way in, and it was just a way of making it personal. It was like, well, okay, I can make kind of a, if I can make this sort of a family document, that could be a way in, you know, and that's, that was at least whether that succeeded or not, that was, that was the impulse. So it's, I think it's just trying to find that, that thing that connects you. Uh, I think that's the only thing you can bank on not that it's always correct, bank on other people connecting to. I, I think trying to second guess what, what's trendy or what's hot is like, uh, some people might be good at it, but not me. Going back to, I have to ask this question, going back to the producer that said, hey, you gotta do this movie, what, was there any word or thought or, is there anything that made you interested enough to even read it or think, it, think about it seriously? What, what was the thing, because you thought, not me, and then something opened the door for you. What was the, what opened the door? 
Hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Remember. By the yeah, question? no, that's a great question because um, was uh, it the person themselves, the producer that you respected, or was it something they said or created curiosity? Was it say were you think, or you said let me just look at it? Or I think I think uh, and, and and who knows? Maybe this was similar to to you guys with Apollo thirteen. I think it was that he he sort of honed in on something that still even to this day is probably taken for granted a little bit uh, when we think back to the space race, which was just how like rinky-dink everything was, yeah, <laughs> you know, and how, totally. how uh, uh, and I think at that point, you know, we had just had movies like Gravity and, and things like that, 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 you know, had this sort of beautiful, grandiose, uh, kind of present-day, virgin on futuristic vision of space and space travel. So it was kind of like, you know, imagine that without modern computers, you know, imagine that, but with screwdrivers and Band-Aid and things like that, you know, and, and uh, just completely practical and, and to modernize uh, uh, rusty and unsafe and, and, uh, and yeah, just reminding people how unsafe it actually was, you know, just because it was successful doesn't mean that, <laughs> that, that, that we or they didn't verge on death at every moment. Yeah, like, I get it for sure, yeah. I, th I think that connected me just enough to read, um, and yeah. Well, I, I felt that in your movie and in some ways felt it in ours that you're, they're just sitting on engines with very little protection at all. And it's, so it's, it is pretty absurd. I mean, I get scared enough just taking off in a plane. So, it, you know, it, it was, uh, I think in terms of like, what's the personal emotion that I try to find? For me, it was fear. It was literally just trying to, just becoming fascinated with the mindset of someone who can deal with that fear, who can sit on top you know these 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 uh, almost nuclear-sized bombs that you know are going to lift them off yeah. into space and uh, and then sit on top of these engines, uh, completely untested, um, you know, and seemingly not break a sweat. It just that felt so distant from me that, I, that it almost made me more interested. The more distant from me it felt, I had to figure out what you know what screw what do kind they of have people, in their how mind that, works. that yeah. I don't. Yeah, that was you did that extremely well. The RZA has a similar mindset. Things that he experienced in the 1990s are happening today, like a cycle that has not been broken. So stories from different time periods can even have a greater effect because they showcase the cyclical nature of history. And it might be the exact time to lay into those emotions. The majority of my material, my work, and, th and my expressions is something that I feel like I want to bring to the world. Um, and and I, I try to go by when I feel it's right, you know. When we did the saga, American Saga, um, for, for me it was like, it's ripe now to tell what the 90s did, right? Because, you know, we grew, I grew up loving what the 60s did, loving what the 70s did, right? And so I think now what the 90s did is, is so vital to, uh, you know, just to our entertainment world and I thought to what I wanted to help uh, share with the world, and that was one of the one of the reasons why I just was driving, driving to you know we talked about maybe should it be a movie, should it be a a mini series? We had all these different ideas. It's like no, this actually can be serialized because uh, the resonation of what some of those things were then are still apparent now. Uh, and I just point out one thing that uh, I was glad we was able to do it in the show. You know, when people hear about Eric Garner, right? That happened in my neighborhood in, in recent history. But that happened in my neighborhood when I was a teenager trying to find my way out the neighborhood. The exact same thing. 
the situation. So it's like for for us, it's like wow, this is just a repeat of history. Uh, and the goal of the goal of you will hope of history, art, and anything is to evolve. We're not going back to those big block cell phones, right? No, we up to <laughs> we trying to evolve. And 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 sometimes when we do tell stories. And also, in, uh, not to talk about your new, your new film, I don't know if I haven't seen it, but also, it, once again, it gives us a chance to, to take a look back and see, have we evolved? And there's some things we have, and there's some things we have not. When films strike an emotional chord with your audience, that's when you know you're doing something right. My favorite part of this entire discussion, and even more so behind the scenes when we weren't rolling, was seeing how big of fans these two men are of each other and then how much respect they have for one another and their work. Damien comes from an entirely different background and storytelling point of view from the RZA, but his films are able to cross that threshold and have an effect in an impactful way. I think that's the most powerful evidence for the point we're trying to make today. No matter who we are or where we come from, we feel the same things and tapping into that is what sets apart great content. I want to give you a compliment. When you just said war movie, and you kind of gave me the picture that the professor in Whiplash is like that drill sergeant in, in a full metal jacket. jacket. Yeah. Right, so that's, a, that's incredible. See, I was, that's, I was totally cribbing was on that. that yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the other... I never thought of that either. It's fantastic. But the other thing that really impressed me, um, you know, so... You know, I get all the Academy screeners for Christmas, and I take them home back east, and my family becomes your black audience, right? Because <laughs> we sit there, about 50 of us, and we watch, and we watch, and we check, 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 and, we, and then I go back and I vote later, right? But uh, the opening sequence to La La Land that year, man, it blew the whole, everybody away, but blew me away particularly. Oh, thank you. And, and so I, I think as writing, like, I think writing it and directing, I don't see how somebody else would have been able to really, like, you knew it so well. You choreographed it all the way down and it, down to the, to the dance, to everybody getting out the car, to, to then ending up on the lead characters. I just thought that was just a magic intro. And um, the only thing that I could not even compare it to, but the only feeling that kind of had a short version of that was the Saturday Night Fever coming across the bridge <laughs> and ending up uh, in that neighborhood, right? Yeah. Was, is, was that, was that kind of the energy, or this is just something? Yeah, I, I well, I mean, uh, th uh, thank you. I'm, I'm a little, uh, I'm blushing now. Um. <laughs> John Ridley has a background in comedy, which you may not suspect if you've seen 12 Years a Slave or the TV series American Crime Story. But in a similar way that stand-up comedians utilize emotions they've experienced, often tragically, John's films can make an audience become emotionally connected to something they've probably never gone through. To this point, he finds the emotion in the unknown. For 12 Years a Slave, most people are familiar with the greater concept and history of slavery in America. But John was more interested in what do we not know, and how can we not only shock viewers, but make the story resonate for every single person in the audience. It was an extraordinary experience for me. I think as a, as a person of color growing up in America, you assume that you know a lot more about certain experiences than the rest of the public. And I've always really enjoyed history. And I've loved history. It was probably the, the out of, <laughs> yes, my parents, it's probably the only 
uh, uh, subject that I did uh, above average in, but I've loved it. I've loved history. I think we do a horrible job of teaching history and teaching history from perspectives. But going into 12 Years a Slave, I think I assumed that I knew a lot more about slavery than I did. And the things that I learned in, in preparing to even be able to start to tackle the script, even though it was based on Solomon's memoir, which if you have not read that, I would really suggest you read it because it's amazing in so many ways, uh, not necessarily good ways, but still amazing. But the preparation that it took to get to a place where I could actually start writing that script was extraordinary. And what was extraordinary was just learning about uh, the creep of slavery. Slavery was not new in the world, but slavery is incredibly unique as we know it in America and how it came to be and why we still have so much trouble unwinding. You know, we look at the things that are going on right now and we're like, well, why can't we get past it? Part of it's because we don't know why we're here. <laughs> um, and that's the truth. That's and what it meant and, and the mass psychosis that it takes. Um, every one of these kinds of tragedies that happens around the world, they're unique to a place or a circumstance or a people or a faith or a race or an ethnicity, a lot of times, unfortunately, we conflate them, which is not a good thing, uh, or we compare them. You cannot compare tragedies, but I think until we learn about specific things that happen, and this was you know, more than 150 years in a country that's only 260, 270 years old, we wonder why we are still in this place. It's because we haven't really gone back to unwind that. And then when you look at the breadth of America, the kinds of people who are here, think of all the things that we need to unwind to really understand how and why we're here. So just in that regard, talking about why 12 Years a Slave was extraordinary. If it was extraordinary at all on the outside for folks who've had the opportunity to see it, it was extraordinary for me to go back and go, oh, here are all these things that you know, I, I, I thought I knew, I knew nothing. After the recession in 2008, John changed the way he thought about content. He decided to write the stories he felt deserved to be told, regardless of if he would make money or not. The thinking behind this was that if something is ugly and sticky and hard to watch, that's what we should be watching to draw attention to an issue or cause that deserves to be discussed. Sort of, it, it became less about, can I sell something, knowing that I could not sell things, but if I couldn't sell things, what were the things that I were going to do because I loved them and because they mattered to me? So the first thing was this Hendrix film. And everybody said, well, you can't, you can't make a Hendrix film. You know, I remember going into um, the studio, again, I don't want to say which one, and pitching this version of this Hendrix film that I want to do. And, and they just looked at me like I was just an idiot or just insane, you can't do it. And, and for me, the big driver, my big driver, is, is, is no. You know, when people say no to me, you know, that's, it's a challenge, it's a bet. It, it makes me feel like I'm on the right track. If other people don't see it, it means it doesn't exist. If it doesn't exist, then it deserves to exist. <laughs> and so I was very fortunate to work with Andre Benjamin. We did this little film was so tiny, I don't know if anybody saw it, but I can tell you who saw it. Bob Iger saw it. Bob Iger loved it. Bob Iger said to me, not personally, but the, his, the, the folks at, at ABC said, can you do that on a weekly basis 
and that became American crime. Um, those both bookend 12 Years a Slave, which was a spec hmm. script that I got oh, no, oh, I, I, I didn't get paid a, a dime up front on that film. That was four years of work with really great good. folks at Plan B who kept saying, if you guys, myself and, 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 and Steve, can figure out what you want to do and figure out how to do it and figure it out for no money, we'll make this movie. And at that time, it was, hey, we're going to make a movie about slavery. Well, you know, try walking that around to the studio. So, Are your movies and television shows, is there like, an, you know, like a deep like internal access point for them, or are they all different cases? In terms like, of... Well, in terms of, like, I can think of, like, three or four of them. They, one could think that they're about race. I would probably think they're about humanity. Someone... But I don't know. They can be bad. I don't know. Well, I think... I mean, there's an exterior, and then there's a deep interior that makes you write for four years for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm serious. Or, or that makes you... I, I feel this. like they're the things that if I don't do them, nobody will. There's a oh, project I'm trying to work on with Chris Pine um, based on Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted. It's all about eviction and homelessness and all these things. And we walk in and, and people are just like, well, nobody's going to watch it and it's depressing. People are dealing with this right now. So my thing is if, if, if the audience can't deal with it, how, what's it like for these people who are dealing, who don't have the choice of, yeah. I'm not going to watch that, I'm going to watch Arrested Development. That's, that's fun and happy when you watch that. That's what I go for. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I love watching it. I love that is one of the few shows that I binge, but at the same time, if you are not putting some things in front of people that are uncomfortable, that make them intentionally uncomfortable, I certainly, in that second phase of my career, it was the I want you to be uncomfortable. I want shots that linger. I want story beats that linger. I want people to go, oh my God, how can you, you know, I think you should cut now. I think you should look away. When we did Gorilla, I remember my, my sister came to me and she said to me, why would you think anybody would want to watch this show? This is my sister. She literally said it to me, what made you think anybody would watch the show? And I, I when I was going through it, the stories that we heard that were going on in the UK and in, the U and in America where we do a horrible job <clears throat> talking about race, class, gender, orientation, all of that, faith, anything. You know, who, no, who else is going to make this? How can I put it in front of people? Um, even with the Hendrix thing, there was the story about how he abused one of his girlfriends. And people were like, why would you put that in? Because it happened. You know, it's not about you know, a hagiography and saying that these folks, and that's one of the things that bothers me now about uh, biopics is they've become, you know, official stories. There's so much, because the states are smarter now and they want them to be this way. And, and, you know, not that, again, they can't end up being popular, but when I look at, like, Lenny versus, you know, pick a biopic now, you know, I look at stuff that happened, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, that stuff was wrong. To me, it's not even about whether it was, so much the truth per se versus is there an emotional honesty to that storytelling versus mm. something that I see now where I go, you know, it's good and it, and it feels good and it hits all those beats, but you know there's a little bit more to that person. You know there's a little bit more to that story. But 
the estate, you know, I mean, they're, they're savvy. They're about maintaining things. You know, think, pick, pick artists now that are in the popular zeitgeist. You know, nobody wants to touch some of that stuff, but that would also be a, a biopic where you go, okay, let me, this, I, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this person coming out, but I think I'm going to understand a little more coming out of it. So that would be what I'd say now are, are what are those things that um, are going to make people very, very uncomfortable. So as John is saying, the things that make viewers lean forward in their seats and engage with a film or a show is rooted in emotional connection. This is something that Brian Grazer also knows to be true and has learned over his 35 years of industry experience. Making a film resonate goes back to the basics. If you strip away story, you should be left with the principles of humanity and ideas that we can all identify with. The themes of life and the emotions that they stem from. Themes are inarguable. Um, stories can be judged and you can get dinged out for spelling and punctuation or, or just saying, oh, that doesn't make sense, or logic. But if you say this is all about love, it's like building to love, you, you, can't, you can't argue against that. <laughs> so, for example, like if I pitched parenthood, I'd say this is the celebra about celebration of life because it wasn't worked out at all. And, and so if in many, so in the case of that, the studio executive might go, well, I don't get it, I don't know. And I go, I mean, you don't get, you don't root for family? You're like, and then when they say, if they, they can't say that they don't root for family. <laughs> you, know, you just can't say it. Um, or if, all, if it's about friendship, you know, whether it's guy friends, girlfriend, whatever, friendship. You have to root for friendship. You have to root for union. We're socialized animals. Um, man's greatest fear is probably loneliness, right? So you want to, you want to, um, a lot of themes, that, uh, the themes that I m make movies and succeed at are um, often they're about self-actualization. Like Eight Mile was about self-actualization. I mean, it had the exterior, you know, the exterior, the exterior of it, of it was, it's a story about like, um, about this rapper that uh, and you're learning about battles, you know? That was sort of the thing that you were learning. That's the environment or world you're being transported to. But ultimately, the movie adds up because he's able to like liberate himself from the end, in the, in the end by saying, yeah, I am white trash, yeah, you did fuck my girl. And he's able to like liberate himself from all the things that damaged him emotionally, that encumber him and made him feel like he was less. And when you're able to liberate yourself, when, in that case, in the case of that story, when he's able to liberate himself of that, you know he's off to something good in his life, that he's evolved. And when, you have, <laughs> when people become self-actualized, in the world of self-actualization, you become self-sustaining somehow. So you can fail at things, but you're not failing yourself. So I always, I like those kinds of stories. It, even if you think about Friday Night Lights, the movie, or the, well, think about the movie, they even lose the game. But you know they are gonna be able to be badasses in life in some ways. They are actually ready for life because they have, their, they have power themselves. Now, Brian's not from Texas or the Southern sports world, but he knew the emotional truth of what's really going on for those high school students between plays because it's universal. 
There are some things and feelings from your youth that define a part of your personal character and identity that you just don't ever forget. It's from one of these moments in Brian's story that the Friday Night Lights we all know and love began. I got cut from high school football. And I remember what it felt like. It felt like when there were, there was a class of, there was a, a big auditorium of about 250 people, all, all divisions of, uh, of our high school football. And you're supposed to say your name and your position. So you'd say Perry Shellmeyer, tailback. Richard Cox, quarterback. Brian Grazer, tailback. And my coach, Coach Ogawa goes, incorrect! Cut! <laughs> and he like cut me in front of 250 people. And I started, like I thought about that in real time, like I was a, I was a human being at Perry Shellmeyer and at Brian Grazer, I became a non-human being. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that is so brutal. Um, and I just remember the emotion, the, I remember the emotion of those 10 seconds or three seconds. And so when this book came along, Friday Night Lights, I thought, I want to make a movie uh, that is primarily about, that is about a boy's identity. How a boy's identity is formed and how about, and how something, the events in a boy's life that are, that even seem imperceptible can have a seismic effect on their life. And like, I mean, that could have just killed me. I mean, it did for a short time. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it could, things kill people, you know? And, and the book itself, uh, the book, you know, the, the one character, Booby Miles, was like a rock star, and then he falls right off a cliff. And, and I, I'm I became intrigued with the formation of identity. And so then I was off on a journey trying to find a director that would, re that would make a movie about that as the primary heartbeat of the movie, but football was, you know, was sort of the exterior of it. And a lot of these directors mostly just wanted to make a football movie. Right. They didn't really want to make a, a movie about the, the identity thing. So it was really about, the book was really about three elements. Living, very, very small town living, Odessa, Texas, Southwest Texas, and then high school football, which is really interesting, and it's, you know, guys get obsessive about it. And then it's about just the universal dynamics of like growing up and, and what that is. Brian finds strength in knowledge of story, being able to justify the why of story choices. So let's look at Splash for a case study. Brian made a choice to not get caught up in the gimmicks of what was working in the marketplace because he couldn't advocate for the why. So he chose to focus on the theme of the movie and the emotions that are not just a current trend that will fade, but are infinitely true. Okay, so when I was doing the mermaid movie, writing, like sitting alone writing that in my little lonely house, um, <laughs> you know, um, what I found is that, I found that I was capable of, you know, I was inexhaustible. Like if someone said, why is it a mermaid? I had an answer for why I was a mermaid. And, not, and everything is, you know, most things are subjective, but I would have endless amounts of answers of why I did a mermaid. I mean, I could tell you why. Okay, why should, I should tell you why the whole thing happened. In other words, like, I could answer questions about this thing, in, you know, again, inexha I was inexhaustible. Like, 
why why is the Tom Hanks character why is Eddie Bauer not like a nebbishy guy because I was say I made the movie when Woody Allen the ethos of Woody Allen was very successful so it was Jewish humor so it was like the the nebbishy nebbishy is like the nerdy Jewish guy so he should have a crummy car and the studio exec that developed it said he's got to have an Edsel. I, I thought, what is an Edsel? But anyway, you know, and, and he should have no money and he should bump into walls and just all the nerdy things. And then I thought, well, yeah, Woody Allen did that and that was really funny, like and played against Sam and stuff. But then there's no wins. Maybe that's just good for Woody Allen. And then I thought, well, I think it's much better if the guy isn't broke. Like they wanted him to be broke because I did have a studio called United Artists that paid for the first draft. And then I thought, I think it's not fun if he's broke and a loser. I think it's fun if he's funny and smart and owns a produce company and has, and has shit together, but he's got like a big giant hole in his head, like, <laughs> I mean, and a hole, or a hole in his self and that he's unable to have love. He's unable to, to be complete. You know, you want to you want to have incomplete people. Those are the best characters to have, for me. And so, so everything kind of did work, except he was incomplete because he was unable to like be fulfilled and fortified and have a foundation of love. So that was the thing he was missing, and that was the thing he was longing, and that was the thing he had to have. So then I started to find, so then I start, when I started to think I should write a movie that's about creating the, finding your perfect woman, and what is the perfect woman? And what, to me, the perfect girl would be like pretty and truthful and like says real things and isn't trying to manipulate you so much, you know, and all that stuff. And, um, and I just started writing my definitions. I started writing definitions of me and would I have a goofy friend and that became John Candy and blah, blah, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I thought, well, how do I supercharge this? Like, like give the girl power. And then I wanted to do two things. Give the girl power and make her even more unattainable. So that's when I thought, because I was always a mermaid, uh, you know, like I read The Little Mermaid and I read Hans Christian Andersen. And I thought, why don't I just make, make her a mermaid, you know, because mermaids have mystical powers, you know, and that's why in the movie itself, you see her like jumping, you know, leaping and stuff like that. Because I shot, we shot her out of a cannon out of the ocean. <laughs> I wanted to show that she had power, you know, like <laughs> really, it was like very, you know, a bite, you know, old school at the time, you know, like. But we did, and then, um, and then I thought would would of course make her much more unattainable as if she, you know, was a mermaid and that only she became she, you know, transmorgified or whatever at certain points and, and so that's how that whole thing came about so so I, I think you can take personal experiences and you can build them into something I think it's like no it's, it's having the sort of foresight to know where you want to be and have a belief system and that that engages somebody's soul goodness does that you know that's why knowing what your theme is like where you're where you're trying to go with the story what is what is your emotional outcome like I always like to know the beginning and the end and everything else we can sort out. And I don't even mind fighting with people in the middle, but I don't want to fight with them at the end. If I think I'm going to fight with someone at the end, I won't work with them. So um, I do like to know like the emotional outcome. If you don't, you have to know what you want, where you want people 
do you want to elevate people emotionally? Do you want to, uh, how do you want that, what do you want that to be? Like horror films are, you know, the, the redemption is antithetical to within the equation of what a horror film is, at least in my estimation. So you, that is not what you want. I'm always trying to, like I was very inspired by seeing the movie E.T. in the Cinerama Dome. Because I, I remember like everybody, there was no aggressive behavior after that movie. It was like everybody was like really cool. And I thought, wow, I would like to be able to try to, you know, make movies that destination can be that, that's emotional destination is to elevate you. Um, and it doesn't mean to be corny, because like, Eight Mile wasn't corny, or I can name other movies I made that I think weren't corny, but they just, they're designed to point you up instead of down. But, but it doesn't mean you have to do that. It just means I do think you have to know your emotional how you want things to end emotionally. So as we've learned today, whether you're pulling from emotional experiences in your own life or from the world around you to craft a story, it's that foundation of emotionality and inarguable themes that great content is built on. We can all justify the feeling of falling in love or painfully relate to the sinking feeling of regret. And it's these emotions and so many others that make us believe regardless of genre or plot, what is unfolding for our characters on screen. Emotion is this common language that ties together the people of the world. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode about emotionality in content. And don't forget to follow at Impact Imagine on Instagram and Twitter and tag us because we want to hear all about what you think the core of a movie or television show really is. We'd like to thank our Impact speakers for their time, wisdom, and supporting the creative community. We'd also like to thank Impact's founders, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, and Tyler Mitchell for making this all possible. Until next time, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and have a great day.